Hello and welcome again to South Beach Sessions, this epic sort of series with John Skipper, who is our friend and our new CEO and also across many years was the most powerful executive in sports. I hope you've enjoyed sort of an inner workings viewing of the corridors of power. The first two episodes were to get to know him and what his objectives are for the new Metal Ark Media. The last two episodes are and have been about his journey at ESPN, some of the cool stories, some of the things that happened while he was in those corridors that you might not normally have access to where you find the rich and the wealthy. We've covered his career. Now it's mostly just ESPN stuff and the stuff at the height of sports when you're making decisions and making for Disney more money than anything in the Disney empire and, furthermore, the most profitable six-year run in the history of the network that has been very profitable. So here is episode four, part four. We will have a surprise fifth part that we didn't know was coming. That is coming up shortly. But for now, here is part four of our conversation with friend and Meadowlark CEO and former ESPN president, John Skipper. Can you explain to us, as you have done this job and advocated for people, who are the people that have become signature personalities at ESPN or elsewhere with your endorsement that were received with the most reluctance that you had to fight for, but it wasn't as popular as perhaps in retrospect it would appear now that they have become stars. Well, it's interesting, of course. There's almost a funny inverse correlation between the people who became the biggest stars and the most resistance. There's very seldom resistance to benevolent mediocrity, right? Uh, nobody gets unhappy when somebody's uh, bland but kind of does the job. Look, it's an interesting place to insert maybe somebody you wouldn't think I would say, Stephen A. Smith. Stephen A. Smith may be the most important person at the network right now, and the level of resistance to Stephen A. Smith was dramatic and manifested most greatly on first take, right? I mean, you just, you had the gnashing of teeth and the wailing of wailing of virgins when uh, we had Stephen A. Smith with his sort of declamatory style and his manner. And uh, I'm like, it's working. It entertains people. You know, Stephen A. Smith is beloved by certain fans. And why shouldn't we do it? And I cannot remember there was one media critic who just couldn't understand how in the world I could have a network and have Stephen A. Smith on and how awful it was and how terrible. And I just can't watch the network. And I'm wanting to remind him that there is an off button. You don't like it. And by the way, we have nine channels. There's eight more choices. Go watch something else. Don't spend all your time telling me what's wrong with this show. When I think we had, you know, around 400,000 people watching every day. I'm very happy for Stephen's success. I know he got the contract he deserved because he is very, very important. And I tell you the, most meaningful time I ever had with Stephen, or one of the most meaningful times is we were walking uh, in the bowels of a stadium. And um, I cannot even remember. I think it was a Monday night football game. Could have, or maybe it was an NBA game probably was. And Stephen A. Smith, I've never been with another ESPN personality who was more interrupted. The guy who was, who was stocking the vending machine would look up and say, Stephen A., and he'd please come over and take a selfie. And every usher was Stephen A. And they loved him. And I think it's appropriate for me to say, in many cases, when black people doing the work in the stadiums would see Stephen A. coming around, they would you could just feel they were saying, that's my guy. That's the guy who is representing me on that network. And uh, I love Stephen A. And again, off the camera, much more soft-spoken guy. He doesn't talk the way he talks on camera, off camera. He's a smart guy. He's a sensitive guy. He's not a guy who has the kind of declamatory opinions on everything. That works on television. That's why he's so good at it. But to, to characterize him as a human being because of the performance he makes on television is just inappropriate. And uh, I took a lot of heat for that. Bill Simmons Bill Simmons never endeared himself to Bristol. He wouldn't come to Bristol. He didn't want to do the car wash. And my sense always was 
he's very, very valuable. Yeah, we'd like everybody to do it, but the most talented people get the most mistakes. They get the most leeway. They get the most freedom because they're the most valuable. People used to say to me, well, I would discipline people for doing something stupid. And uh, they'd say, would you do this to Bill Simmons? I'd be like, no, because he's the most valuable guy we got writing for us right now. He generates hundreds of millions of page views. We make money off of that. And I'm not going to cut off my nose to spite my face. Uh, I hate doing cliches, but I just did it. In order to make a point and be consistent. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. You don't have to be consistent. Last time I checked, I'm not paying everybody the same money. Uh, I'm paying Bill Simmons more money than I'm paying you. And he's going to get more chances than you because he's so valuable. But Bristol hated Bill Simmons for the most part. Not true of a lot of people. Your, your friend and mine, John Walsh, loved him. Vince Doria actually is the guy who pointed him out first. And so I don't, I'm going to characterize a nameless Bristol to damn people without having to get trouble with anybody specific. But in generally wasn't that popular in Bristol. We talked previously, you weren't always popular in Bristol because you wanted to be in Miami. You didn't want to come to Bristol. But you liked people like that. You were trying, you purposely hired and empowered people like that because you wanted fire starters. You wanted, you're from Rolling Stone. You wanted cages rattled. You wanted things done differently. You couldn't change an entire history or however many employees you had, but you could hire a handful of influencers. And when they rubbed up against things and there were sparks, you could say it's okay to have sparks. My guess is you like the sparks coming from Rolling Stone. I want to get into the couple of times you had to suspend me. We'll do that in a second. But you liked uh, a little bit of nefarious behavior. Of course. I mean, you know, it, it's provoking. You know, provoking and provocative are the same things, right? Provocative is kind of a positive. That's kind of a positive nuance and provoking doesn't, but they're cousins. And, you know, yeah, I wanted provocation. I wanted there to be intellectual stimulation. I wanted there to be thoughtful things said. When I usually got the most mad is when it wasn't thoughtful. You'll remind me later what you got in trouble for. I can barely remember, but it was much harder for me if somebody said something smart that made somebody mad or insulted somebody. It was much harder when it was, I mean, it was much easier when it was an offhanded comment. I don't think Bill will mind me using him again. I mean, when Bill called Roger Goodell, you know, an effing liar, it was easier to suspend him than it was if he had a nuanced column on what he regarded as the commissioner's inconsistencies in uh, how he approached something. People are always welcome to do things as long as they were sort of smart and thoughtful. I didn't even mind if they were provocative as long as they weren't personally insulting or mischaracterizations of people. So, yeah, I did want the provocation. Did it hurt you to let go of Simmons? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Bill and I were very close for 14 years. We laughed. I went with Bill to a Patriot Super Bowl, and he was like a kid. And Bill is a super fan. Right? I mean, Bill wears his emotions on his sleeve. We had great fun. He was a transcendent talent. And yeah, it, it uh, hurt me. And that was a little of, uh, I tell people, be careful about moving upward in an organization because you'll get to do less and less of the things you like, and you'll get to do more and more of the things you don't like. I did call George one time, shortly after I became president. And I said, George, I can't, I can't understand why it seems like in this job, Almost everything I deal with is unpleasant. It's a problem. It's difficult. And George, who was quite wise, said, well, you know, Skip, if it wasn't difficult, it wouldn't get to your level because somebody would solve it. If it was easy and fun, they'd just do it themselves. So everything that gets to you is something that somebody else can't figure out or doesn't want to deal with. I'm like, wow, that's pretty smart. So I did frequently tell people would come in and say, I'm looking to move up. I'm like, well, be careful. Because right now you're working on, Connor Shell was a friend of mine and did a splendid job. And I never remember we were talking about his career and what he was doing. And I said, look, you've got a lot of upward mobility. You can do a lot of things. He, just like I, when I was chief content officer, wanted to be the president. Connor told me, I want to be the chief content officer. And I said, it's great. But I, I said, you know, all the fun you're having right now, making those documentaries and dealing with creators, you're not going to be doing that because you're going to be spending all your time trying to figure out whether to suspend Dan LeBetard or not. <laughs> all 
Uh, what happened with Kurt Schilling? What can you tell us there about Kurt Schilling was at the company. Kurt Schilling uh, went off the deep end uh, a long time ago and was embarrassing the company. What can be said there? I'm only pausing for a moment because I want to recollect the circumstances because I didn't know Kurt that well. And I think, I can't remember if it was the last straw or simply the 14th straw, but at one point he posted a quite derogatory photo of a transgender uh, in a pig mask with some very rude, dismissive and intolerant comment. And I do remember being in my office and uh, saying, that's kind of it. You know, you can't work here. You know, we have transgender employees and you cannot give them the bird and dismiss them as human beings and work here. That's not the way it works. People say, gee, you've interfered with his freedom of expression. No, I have not. He has every right to do that. The First Amendment gives him that. However, his employment contract suggests that he must adhere to the values and standards of the company he works for. I believe he, like other people, had a problem understanding that. He thought he had the right to say whatever he wanted to say. He does. He has the American right. He did not have the right as an employee of ESPN to do it. So and I don't know that I, whether I did it myself or I told somebody else that's it. I'd like him to be dismissed. What is the angriest you have been with an employee? I think I've heard you say that the only times you've lost your cool are with Jamel and with Bill. I think I have that right. What would you identify as the angriest you have been with somebody who is a personality at the network? I think that's right. And I regret it, but I understand it now better with a little perspective which, of course, you would be the angriest at the people you cared about the most, right? I was angry because it was defense mechanism for, I love you. Why are you putting me in this position? Why are you making me have to do this? That, of course, was not what they were trying to do. They weren't trying to put me in a position. They were trying to be themselves. And, of course, these are difficult lines to draw and delicate lines to draw. You've heard me be quite passionate about we want to let people be themselves. We want to let people express themselves and figuring out where you've crossed the line where that doesn't, uh, doesn't apply is tough. It's really tough. I guess it's, you know, I guess I'd say I, I got mad at, when I got mad at my kids, it was the most difficult and I got angry at them than anybody else because they were my kids and it was disappointing. So it's hard to get completely angry at somebody that you don't particularly respect. Right. You get mad at somebody because there's a level, and Jamel has expressed that. Jamel has said, I'm sorry I disappointed him. She doesn't say, I think I did the wrong thing, or I'm sorry about my judgment. She says, and by the way, I think that's an appropriate expression of regret, which is I can identify here that what makes me regretful is I let down somebody I'd rather not let down. I guess I had a little bit of the same regret which manifested itself in anger, which was, I'm disappointed. And by the way, dismissing somebody when you don't want to makes you angry, makes you angry. Suspending somebody you don't want to, you know, anger is a, is an emotion that's not connected with insecurity and not unconnected with sadness. And you get sad, you get angry about what made you sad, right? My father died. I was angry at the universe because I missed him. And and I see it. So I guess those things are a little bit akin. So that is an accurate uh, reflection, Dan. I think it was the times with Jamel and the times with um, with Bill. Jamel said she cried in your office. I can't even imagine how that one went over for you. Like, I can't even imagine, given the amount of support that you were giving her, you were giving her and Michael this platform on SportsCenter, and it was a wonderful thing to give them. You were trying to freshen up SportsCenter. You were trying to freshen up diversity voices. Uh, they were trying their best. There was a lot working against them because it was counterculture. It was unfamiliar. You were supporting everything that she was about. And she said, because she disappointed you that she was just crying in your office. And I can't even imagine how that one went over with you. Like you can't have a lot of situations where someone you work with is crying because you're angry, because you're disappointed in them, because you're trying to give them a platform and they're doing something on Twitter, no matter how right it was in retrospect for her to sort of flippantly say that uh, Donald Trump was a white supremacist uh, when she went down the path. I think what she got in trouble for was saying boycott the league. And now you're partners here in the NFL 
and you've got one of your employees, one of your signature employees, saying boycott the league. And I think that was what what was the triggering on the last incident, if I have it right. I could misremember it. It's almost, it's very close to right. But I think she actually said, she might have said boycott the league, but she added, I think it would be an appropriate action to identify the sponsors of the NFL and boycott them. And now it's like, gee, you are causing problems with an important partner of the league. Now, we let people do that as long as they adhered to, you need to be thoughtful, you need not to personally characterize people. But then there was like, geez, you, you've done that. You made, you clearly made the league mad. Now, the people who are actually paying for my and your salary, you're going after. So you're kind of burning down the house to make a point. Couldn't you please try to make the point without burning down the house. And in retrospect, I can't completely put myself in Jamel Hill's soul and spirit, right? The president was insulting black people. Uh, At some point, you do have to stand up for yourself, and it's a thin line. I thought at the time she crossed it. After four years in Charlottesville and Black Lives Matter and Stormy the Capitol, maybe Jamel had it right, whether the right platform was to do it as an ESPN star, I don't know. But we've learned, I think, in the last four years that there are times when people have to stand up and be counted or they're complicit and didn't have the foresight. I wish the last four years had turned out a little different, but I don't see that uh, much was done to, to prove Jamel's assertion to be wrong. There are conflicts throughout the job when you're sitting here trying to do journalism. And I always thought, and I think it can now be told, I always thought that somebody must have given permission at the network, and I figured that somebody was you, for everyone in our network after the Ray Rice thing to all of a sudden be calling for the firing of Roger Goodell. Again, because it's a partner, and I understand the commissioner is in large part there, a public relations pinata there to take the hits on behalf of the owner, but I was stunned to see how ESPN seemed to be in one voice. Not that it mattered because he's still in the job being paid handsomely and it ends up being just a bunch of noise. But I was stunned that there were so many voices on ESPN calling for the firing of Roger Goodell. There was never any edict or permission. Nobody was asked to do it and nobody was told not to do it and nobody was given permission to do it. Given, if you remember And this is a bit of a precursor. Remember, it was the footage, right? It was the footage. It was in the elevator. And when you could actually see it, I could not bring myself to call anybody to say, you can't do that. That footage was so awful. And again, we've gotten a little used to it with the footage that we've seen now from from many of the bad incidents, the killing of black people. We've gotten used to it. And, And by the way, it's overwhelmingly a difficult thing to deal with but ultimately fairly positive that there is a way to expose these things. But that was an early one. And we hadn't seen that kind of thing before. I'm trying to remember it now. And I think there's a moment where he just turns to her in the elevator, knocks her down. Mm -hmm. And you were like, how could anyone see that and put that guy back in the uniform and let him play football? You can't do it. And um, boy, it seems like a long time ago, doesn't it, Dan? But I guess it wasn't. I can't remember when that was, but it certainly was in the last decade, maybe in the last six or seven years. I can't remember. Yeah, no, it's it's not that long ago, but at the time, it sort of signaled a seismic shift. I remember it came out while we were on the air, and I fairly immediately was like, oh, my God, that's going to be the worst domestic abuse scandal we've had in the history of sports outside of Ray Carruth and O.J. Simpson because we have the video. We never have the video. I was still surprised to see a corporate partner. We have talked – before about some of the decisions that have had to be made at ESPN playmakers I thought could have been a real revolutionary show for ESPN in terms of making content and I always assumed that was nuked because of the league partnership and the idea that there were drugs being associated with football and the kind of image that football didn't want we were knocked out of ballers I was on the first season of ballers the second season was supposed to start with something it got nuked I assume that was always because of the NFL partnership there must be all sorts of conflicts like that you were always managing we were managing that that was uh I'm happy to say um before my time as content officer it was that show looked very much like shows look today there's no doubt that that was a fantastic execution of a scripted drama about 
the most popular sport in the country and should have been a hit. I did think, and I was in a position at the time, just as a member of Georgia's staff, to say I think the mistake made there was not telling the league. I did put in place a policy when I was in charge of content and then the president that one of the rules was you can't surprise our partners. If you got some revelation, you got a story, you're going to do a video that they're not going to like, we're going to give them a heads up. You're not going to see it on television. We didn't give them a heads up so that they could change it, stop us from doing it. Um, they, uh, we gave them a heads up so they wouldn't be sitting home in their living room and go, what the hell? And I thought that was reasonable partnership. I am pretty sure that they saw that while they were sitting at home in their living room and it was a revelation, which is what the hell are they doing? I had one of those in my career, Dan, and it is, you asked me about regrets before and I do regret it. I handled it as best I could at the time, but it is an incident I regret. And that was, we were engaged with, gee, who was it? PBS on a documentary series about concussions. I had agreed to do it. I thought it was a good idea. And um, I think that the content that came out of that was good. And it was based upon a lot of reporting that the Fainaru brothers, who are spectacular reporters, had done for us. And I was proud of the work. And PBS began running promos for the series that I'd never seen. And I was uh, called to task for that appropriately for what are you doing? And I felt it was a violation of what we'd had as our policy that we weren't going to surprise our partners. And when I investigated it, I found out that we did not have creative approval over those promos or anything to do with them, which I also thought was not wise. Our name was on that product. So the decision I made, which was a bit Solomonic and it's interesting that Solomonic Solomon, of course, is known for being wise, but you call something Solomonic when it is an idiotic cutting of the baby. I guess the way that works is he suggested they would cut the baby in two and he was wise enough to know that nobody would want the baby cut in two. But what I actually, in fact, did was to cut the baby in two, right? I said, okay, I will be able to have plausible deniability that I ever changed anything, any content, which is true. But I actually will sever our relationship brand-wise with that program. And it turned out to be like cutting the baby up. It didn't really make anybody happy. It wasn't like it made the NFL happy. And then it provided the only, I think, stain on something I always insisted on, which is we've never changed anything. It's true. We didn't change the word because anybody was unhappy in our journalism. But in that case, I could still say it was true. But every time I said it, it was in my mind, I'd go, except for that one time I did take our brand off of the PBS ESPN show. And I was mad at a really, really good guy and an outstanding journalist named Vince Doria, who was just doing good journalism. And I think, you know, it wasn't his, his predilection to remember that, you know, or even to know about the promos, but I was mad. I'm like, you kind of put me in a bad spot here and there's kind of nothing I'm going to do. And I'm going to make a Solomonic decision, which you're not going to like, but there is some culpability in our not being aware of it, not having creative approval. But I regretted that. That was a bad incident. What would you do differently if you had to do it all over again? Would you have sided? Would you have just told the NFL? Would you have sided with the journalism? Doria mentioned to me very early on, and Lord knows I suffered through these turbulences, but he mentioned to me very early on, hey, if you're not getting in trouble once in a while, you're not doing a very good show. So uh, Vince Doria sort of saw some of that stuff, but also as a content guy, as a journalist, as a former sports editor, he's always wanting, he's going to always want to keep someone like you who has to protect the business interests outside of the editorial content so the two can be independent. But it's almost impossible at ESPN, John, because ESPN has all sorts of business partnerships. Like it can't be pure journalism when you've got billion dollar partnerships that are funding the entire business with your partners. Well, I think for the most part, we did do expurgated journalism and superior journalism. ESPN, I'm proud to say, built by far the largest sports enterprise and investigative sports unit in the history of sports media. Uh, nobody had a quarter of the journalists we had or did a quarter of the giant. The New York Times was the closest 
in terms of sports journalism and enterprise, certainly not any of the other sports media companies. HBO did some, but uh, I was proud of that. I think Vince is, Vince was a stellar journalist. You're right. I mean, a great journalist. And maybe just as I had that story about Connor, you rise up in the content organization, you end up being more of an executive than a content creator. Vince was an executive. And I, I guess if I, if we had a, a sort of dissonance about it, it was Vince, yeah, you're a journalist. And maybe for a journalist, you get in trouble sometimes, but you're not just a journalist. You're running the news group. You're an executive. And because of that, you got to be thinking about the company. Doesn't mean you got to do anything different, but you got to help me as an executive manage your relationship while I help you do journalism. I felt like each of us kind of lapsed a little bit fulfilling that. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. You mentioned being called to task. How often did that happen to you? I can't imagine that that would be something that would happen very often, where a man for a decade who was the most powerful man in sports being called to task by a partner. Uh, it didn't happen very often. It happened with David Stern, right? David Stern delighted, and I love David Stern, but he delighted in um, calling me on the phone and just chewing me out just telling me that I didn't have the slightest clue what I was doing as a producer, that the NBA show the day before was a travesty and he just couldn't imagine. I, I must have, you know, I must not like the league. I must not want to be in business with them because I couldn't have done this awful content I'd done. And David also was quite colorful in his language. So there's very few things he did not call me. And I remember two funny stories about David. One was David telling me, gee, John, I had this arrangement. I think it was with Dick Ebersole. You know, when Dick and we were partners with the NBA, we would meet like, and I may have this slightly wrong, but it was right directionally. He said, Dick and I would meet on Friday and we'd talk about what was going to be in the show on Sunday. And then on Monday, we would go over what had been in the show on Sunday and, uh, talk about that and get ready for the next week. And then on Wednesday, I'd get a report on what was coming up. And he'd say, I'd like to sort of do that. And I said, well, David, Dick Ebersol was doing 450 hours of sports a week. No, no, a year, a year. He's doing 45 hours of sports a year. So that half hour of the NBA is about 5% to 10% of all the sports he did that weekend. We're doing, at the time, maybe 50,000, 60,000 hours of sports. And over... The week of sports, you know, we, we'd be doing a thousand hours of television and yours, David, is one of the more important 30 minutes out of that thousand hours. But no, I'm not going to have three damn meetings with you about a 30 minute show. It just, it doesn't work for me. I can't do it. And I think that was, um, you know, that was the difference between ESPN and the mighty broadcast networks of the time, right? They were... To my mind, they were a little precious. It was like, oh, we have this jewel of a 30-minute show followed by a game. And as the leading executive, I'm going to be in the truck making sure we get that game right. And I'm going to call the commissioner three times. I used to think sitting at ESPN, now I'm having a little fun. I'm okay with it because Dick Ebersole had a little fun with us a few times. That doesn't sound like a full-time job to me. <laughs> that sounds like a part-time job. So that the other funny story I have about David Stern is, I was once in a meeting with David Stern and oh my gosh, he just killed me, just killed me, called me every name, this and that. And I think he felt a little bad about it at the end of it. And he said, gee, John, you want to come with Adam and me this weekend? We're going to fly to take the company jet and fly to a playoff game. I can't remember what it was, but he said, we'd love to have you. And he said, why don't you bring one of your sons? I know they're both basketball fans and players. So why don't you bring one of your sons with you? And I said, Dad, David, that's a thoughtful offer. And I said, I'll do it under one condition. And he said, well, what is that condition, John? And I said, 
during the plane trip in the presence of my children, you may not call me a mother. <laughs> and David looked at me and he said, do I do that? And I said, David, you just did it nine times in the last five minutes. And I'm just that you not do that in front of my sons with the time we're teenagers and actually thought their father was uh, a good guy and had a good relationship with the commissioner, which I did. And by the way, one of my sons did come with me that week. And David did refrain for that brief period of time from labeling me with that lovely uh, uh, epithet. Do you remember what he was calling you that about? Or was that so common that you don't even remember what he was so angry about that he would call you that nine times in five minutes? David was almost always mad only about one thing. And that was what he regarded as the lapses, mistakes, travesties in the production of his game and his pregame show. And make no mistake, David thought it was his pregame show and his game and that we were simply the caretakers. And he, I mean, you talk about not quite understanding the, the divide between the person who licensed the rights and is producing them and the person who uh, is in charge of the league. It was like, David, it's our broadcast of your licensed product. We got it. And by the way, uh, I always wanted to call him when NBA TV launched and wished that I had the temerity and the chutzpah to harangue David by saying, I watched your game this week and you did this and you did that. You got this fact wrong. And so, you know, your announcer wasn't really that great because I just assure you that the, their production was very good. It was not better than ours. And I always found that slightly amusing that their own media broadcasting games is hard. And anybody who wants to get mad at your announcers can find something stupid they've said. They can find something they would like them to have said. But David regarded it as a little bit of a game. He regarded intimidation as, a, as an appropriate mechanism to get you to do what you wanted. And he... You know, David, David's one of those people who looks up and, and, you know, he passed a couple of years ago and I was at the service and it was wonderful and I have wonderful memories of him. But one thing David was never racked with was self-doubt. I'm not sure he ever thought that he was wrong about anything. Now, I'm sure Adam would tell me or other people would say, no, you're wrong, David. And they did have wonderful stories about it. No matter what I think about David, when my mother was sick, he called me and, and he did. He did do that. He did not regard that as an inconsistency in character. You can tell this story now, I suppose. I've never asked you this, but the closest I've ever come on air to feeling like I was the slow-motion action hero walking away from an explosion behind me was when Stan Van Gundy, and you appreciate this about me, that I don't mind so much causing sparks when I bump up against the corporate machine. But Stan Van Gundy on our show, without me saying anything, said of ESPN, and he did not like David Stern at all and thought that David Stern was the one who nuked his ability to be, I guess it would have been Doug Collins at the time in terms of on one of their signature shows. And he would have been great at it, but he just ripped ESPN and by extension, I guess you and Stern by saying you have to have no balls whatsoever on air, on ESPN air, you have to have no balls whatsoever to pay someone billions of dollars and then also not choose who the announcers are on games. Let that person you're paying billions of dollars choose to nuke Stan Van Gundy on a pregame show or a halftime show. Can it be told now? Was it David Stern, the late David Stern, who kept Stan Van Gundy off of that show? Do you remember or was that beneath your pay grade? I don't think he did it. Now, by the way, we were always cognizant of what the NBA liked and didn't like, but I never received a call from Adam or David saying, you cannot do this. You just cannot. Now, it influenced my decisions. I knew what they wanted. There's nothing wrong with that. And to my great surprise, when I got the content job, I did learn at one point that the contract that the NBA had did give them approval over the on air. And one reason I was surprised about that is we had put the people we wanted on the air and I'd never called to ask permission. And at some point was pointed out to me, well, you kind of are supposed to, but the league never had me do that. They never asked me to do that. I never did it. Certainly they let me know what they didn't like. 
Adam, of course, in demeanor is very different than David. And I don't think, I, I, my guess is that contract was done when David was the commissioner. My guess would be given the relationship Adam and I had, he would never have felt that it was necessary. That if he needed, wanted to tell me something, he would tell me. And he, I think Adam would have probably considered it a little unseemly to have ever said, you cannot have that person on the air. I don't remember that about Stan Van Gundy. I don't think it was true. We had his brother on. There's no, Stan Van Gundy is actually pretty good. Yeah, my recollection. Did football ever do that? Did football ever, uh, was football ever comfortable enough to make calls there and be like, hey, we don't want this person? I don't think they either had that contractually. And no, I don't think they ever did that. Again, when we put Tony on, I don't know what they thought about it, but I think actually in football, I think I actually remember Roger telling me once or twice, that's your business. You guys figure out how to do it. They didn't mind telling you what they thought didn't work or but I don't, I, I'm pretty sure I remember him telling me that's not really our job to tell you who to put on. You would do the decision again, right? If I told you you had to do it exactly the same way, everything has to be exactly the same way. You can't go back and fix anything. It's just, this is the way it's going to be. And the choice is you can either do it or not do it. You still do it, right? It's a clever way to put the question because it forces the answer that, yeah, I would still do it. By the way, I just recently participated in a thing that Don Van Natta, a very good journalist, did where they look back at the decision and he believes and the piece posits that that was a fairly significant event and that LeBron's taking charge of his own announcement was actually pretty profound and not a bad thing, right? It's not a great thing for a sports media company because you would rather that you controlled it. And of course, as a journalist, there's a, a certain certain difficulty in accepting that athletes now have their own platforms and they can make their own announcements. They can bypass the media if they want to. By the way, you and I right now are using our own media to bypass other media. So I don't want to be too judgmental. But yeah, I would do it again. It was a profound thing. LeBron has the right to make his own announcement. If you ask me a slightly different question, would I do it somewhat differently? Yeah, including, I think, could probably have been a little more collaborative with LeBron about it and helped, with all due frankness, helped a little more. I don't think there was anything wrong with that. It got a 6.7 rating, which is a very, very good rating for a playoff game And in most sports. I think it was at one point the highest rating for any non-live event at ESPN. We were in the business of attracting eyeballs. If you asked any other sports executive if they would have taken it, the answer would have been yes, though every journalist working for them said it was a travesty. So there were some mistakes made. If I could change one thing, it would have been the phrase, I'm taking my talents to South Beach, right? I think that was an unfortunate turn of phrase. My guess is LeBron knows that. He's a thoughtful, smart guy. And the other funny thing that I didn't regret at all, though you, we could have managed it better, we should have said the announcement's coming at the 30-minute mark and then talked about it and all. Instead, it was like, you didn't say that. And people sometimes blame Jim Gray. We put Jim Gray in the uncomfortable position of saying, keep it going, because of course we want to keep it going. It, you know, 6.7 million people well, watching. I talked to Don Van Natta here on the show. Uh, he was talking for that backstory episode. He was saying an ESPN gave LeBron James an hour of television. And I'm like, and they gave him every hour of television since for free, too. He dominated <laughs> for a decade the entire network from that moment on. From that moment on, he became America's most popular athlete, America's biggest athlete. He went from popular to unpopular to more popular. And our network, in part of this partnership with a league that makes stars of its players, our network made him an even bigger star by devoting so many hours after that to it. Oh, my gosh. I don't need to listen to another debate on whether he is now greater than Michael Jordan. That is not what Meadowlark will be doing. Meadowlark no. uh, Media will not be doing, uh, we have a solemn vow here uh, that we will not ever do, is LeBron James better than Michael? We will not. Though Michael clearly was better. <laughs> <laughs> I say that only because I'm a North Carolina yes, guy. Yes, we do. That is uh, why you say uh, that. He's such an unbelievable player. The fact that they he won with a third team is uh, remarkable. Anyway, I have nothing but respect for him. 
I want to tell the people, and you tell me if I'm betraying a confidence here, but I think it's kind of important for people to know this about you as our friendship and our relationship becomes a partnership that is about business, but is also about the principles that I have been trying to work out on air for you on ESPN and elsewhere in order to be the employee that you thought you were bringing in when you first hired me, that you were helping before the undefeated became the undefeated. You were trying to make the undefeated in the shadows, correct? You were trying to do that before it happened elsewhere because you thought it was important for minority voices and minority viewpoints to be heard, and you were being met with resistance wherever it is you were being met with resistance. Look, the same way, so when we did Grantland, one thing I learned was if you branded something, gave it a sub-brand that wasn't ESPN, so Grantland, it was Grantland, you could get a little more leeway at doing cultural things and music things, and you could be a little less sportsy. You could say a few things that if it was ESPN, you might not be able to say. So I'd learn that with Grantland. You buy yourself a little distance, a little freedom. It gives you it gives you a chance to do some things. I also understood that as ESPN kept getting bigger and bigger, and it was mon- ESPN's monolithic, right? Um, it comes under some, uh, some significant heat now, but ESPN in the culture is ubiquitous. You walk through any airport, it's ESPN. You go to any bar, it's ESPN. Hotel, it's ESPN. And what I knew was you can't be big, big, big and be warm and fuzzy. So Grantland was created, little distance, and also to be the thing that people who thought they couldn't love ESPN could love. And I'll never forget, I would go speak to a lot of college journalism classes, and they'd say, ah, ESPN's become, you know, it's too much noise, too much debate. And then they'd say, but I love Grantland. I love Grantland. So what I thought was, one, we need to have, partly as a, because it's a good thing to do, we should have a black run website, right? It should be composed of, uh, overwhelmingly of black people. It was not doctrinally that everybody had to be black, but it was a black centric, black point of view. That's going to give us some distance. And maybe I did believe these issues, these social issues, these social justice matters are, are not going to decline in importance. They're going to appreciate importance. So we once again can buy ourselves a little distance. Maybe we can say some things there and uh, that's why we did it. And yeah, I thought it was important and it made me very proud. We did it in Washington, D.C. A, a great guy who was the news editor of the Washington Post, Kevin Meredith, joined me when I walked into that office in Washington, D.C. And it was the same office that Tony and Mike were in for PTI and saw that staff. And I think it was 25 or 30 members and 23 or 24 of them were black and a couple were Hispanic and a couple were white. And I thought, man, this is great. How great is this? It's the first time many of these people could sit within ESPN and go, gee, instead of being the two, I'm the 24. I don't get to do this very often. And uh, I think that's important. When you're me, a white man, you're used to, you're part of the 24. You're always, you know, and women get the same marginalization. By the way, I'm equally proud about launching ESPNW, where we said, you know what, women, are going to run this and we're going to deal with women's sports and women's issues. So they get that experience seemed appropriate. The undefeated that given the preponderance of black athletes in many of the major American sports, why in the world wouldn't you let them have the majority somewhere? And I'm proud of that. Oh my gosh. You know, that was, that took on the sobriquet in most of media of Skipper's folly. You know, this is Skipper's folly. This is the proof that the guy's, you know, completely gone. Again, it's something I'm proud of. It, it, it operates now, and, you know, a few more people think than used to think so. Now think it's an important thing, and the Walt Disney Company is trying to expand it and invest in it because I think they understand that it it's an important vehicle and an important voice for the company. How do you feel, John, as someone who bought the journalist watchdogs who trafficked in sort of taking people out of the sports sections and helping kill the sports sections, with the idea that you're at least partially to blame for debate television, debate culture in sports, that first take went from 
ESPN's most criticized show to one of its signature hood ornaments, debate culture. You feel how about that? Sports television debate. I feel fine about it. I mean, lots. it's one of the things that defines sports fandom, right, is you want to debate what's the greatest uh, college basketball team of all time, you know, who who's the best owner. Who is, it's, it's fine. I don't have any issue with it. It may not be the thing I want to spend most of my time doing, and there is a certain numbing sameness to it, right, and a predictability to it. So I don't consider it the most innovative thing or – the most fun thing we've done. And I don't personally indulge in it very much, but I don't have any problem with it. Again, when I got criticized for first take, I have the same answer. If you don't like debate television, we've got about 143 other things you could watch. Just watch them. What would you like the audience to know about our relationship? If what we're explaining in these podcasts to the people, introducing them to our new CEO, my friend, a partnership, that we're very excited about because it seems like there is a lot of stuff here that can be groomed for the audience to make cool things. I feel like the sports media has missed a couple of the things that have happened here, but when you combine our audience with the ownership of our feeds, you get a situation where a man like John Skipper is coming because of friendship, but because he sees value as well from a giant job in sports where he is negotiating multi-billion dollar deals, he sees value here. So explain to people from your vantage point, John, what our relationship is. Our relationship right now is one of good friends, right? And good friends are rare and necessary and therapeutic. And the chance to actually be in a partnership, participate in my friend's programming and be with my friend's friends is a spectacular opportunity. And it's why we're here on this podcast, right? I laughed about our sort of taking control and doing this on our medium. But what's important about that is I come on with these people who listen, love you. They love the show. It matters to them. You heard me talk about what's important at Rolling Stone or ESPN.com is doing something that connects with an audience. And in some ways, I wanted to make sure your audience is okay with me, that I'm an appropriate partner for you, appropriate co-curator of what we're going to do together. These people love you and love what you do, and I want them to be okay with me. I know it sounds funny, but it feels like a job interview in front of two million people. What else do you want them to know about the company? I think what I want them to know about the company is that you and I are going to try to create a model for a modern progressive sports media company. And that doesn't mean anything political. It means how you treat other human beings. You and I have decided that everybody who works in the company is going to participate in the profits of the company, have a piece of the company. I think that's an important thing that makes everybody feel valued, feel collaborative. We want everybody to benefit in success, not a few executives or talent at the top, but everybody. We want to have a company that is a model of diversity and a model of inclusion at all levels. You're going to see that we're not going to have any hesitation at any level of the company at being diverse and inviting people from the largest possible talent pool to join us. I I want people to be proud of what you and I are doing. I want them to feel like it's a badge of honor to uh, work for us. I want to feel like people feel like if they're supporting us, They're doing, helping us do some of the right things. We'll make mistakes. We'll step in a hole somewhere, but it won't be for lack of commitment to doing the right thing. Why are you the right leader for us? Well, I think that that will either be self-evident over time and I'll prove that I am. I'm highly confident that I will. I'm the right leader for you. I've, I've spent my career empowering people to do their best work in helping them think about that. I'm not a transcendent on-air talent. I'm not a transcendent writer or director. I'm much better at enabling people to do their best work, my best work, doing a podcast would not approach your work or the, the best practitioners of the craft. I can't write the same kind of great story that Gary Smith could write, but I can help them do it because I'm in a position 
of having access to financial wherewithal. I mean, I've been in positions of authority at companies where they could do that. I learned this a little bit from Jan Winter at Rolling Stone. Look at the collection of talent at Rolling Stone and how many people did their best work for Rolling Stone. How many people did he discover and empower? Great photographers, great writers, great editors. And Jan could write, he could edit, he could interview but not nearly as well as many of the people who did that for him. He certainly wouldn't claim to be as good a photographer as Annie Leibovitz or even his son, Theo, but he enabled people to do that and he could recognize who the people who would be good at that were. That's a singular talent. I'd rather be a great writer, by the way. You know, if I could wave a magic wand, I wish I was writing great novels. People always say, why don't you write a book? I'm like, it's too damn hard. And I'm actually not confident that I would be good at it. I'm confident, that's why I will answer that I am the right leader for this. So I'm confident that the things I know how to do will be the things that will enable a talented group of people. And those are gonna be the most important people in our company to do their best work ever. And that that best work will have commercial value and it will enable a great big group of people to have better lives. That's what we want. We wanna create great content, do it with people we like. And most people in the world want to have a family. They want to have the people they love be healthy and well-fed and have a good place to live. They want to go on fun vacations together and do fun things together. It's not much more complicated than that. And it's mostly when we make things more complicated than that, that people are unhappy. And maybe you and I will try to do things simply and right and enable a bunch of people, including you and me, to be happy and satisfied in the work we get to do. I am fired up and friends has been something that the people around here have enjoyed. And when we call it and friends, we've never had and friends above the organization running things. El Jefe, CEO, we've never had it quite like this where John Skipper is taking over the reins of what we do around here. And we're really excited and proud to have him because we know he's going to do good work. John, thank you for spending so much time with us and the audience, sir. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a hell of a ride. We're all super pumped up about it. Thank you, Dan. It's really a pleasure to be here. And uh, the best is yet to come and coming quick. 